0: sometimes we have great anticipation for something and that anticipation goes on and on and on and on so that you just get tired of waiting and yeah the thought that it's going to take place is out there but it just takes so long you just kind of let it go it's in the back of your mind but it's just kind of a little rumble were the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias, and Elizabeth. Perhaps that's what the anticipation was like. In the back of their minds, they knew that something great was coming. As faithful Jewish people, priests, well, a priest and a priest's wife, who were faithful in their knowledge and worship of God, looking for the time of that Messiah, that the time that it was coming. In the back of their minds, yes, it was coming. But maybe that anticipation had led them to a point of almost disbelief. I want you to think about Zacharias and his encounter with Gabriel the angel as he's serving in the temple. And as we think about Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, and as we think about his anticipation of this moment, I want us to think about how sometimes we can find ourselves in the position of discounting the power of God. And I want us to think this morning about how Zacharias, even though he was faithful, even though he believed in God, even though he was a righteous man, still it seems, and to a certain extent, he discounted the power of God, maybe because of that anticipation. Maybe because that anticipation had grown cold. But I want us to think about, first of all, Zacharias's encounter with God, his experience with God in the temple. I want us to think about his experience with doubt. And then I want us to think about our own anticipation and encounters with God. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to Luke chapter 1. And as you turn to Luke chapter 1, let's notice how Luke sets up his gospel. Luke tells us that he searched things out clearly. He wanted to make sure that we knew that as his readers had anticipated the gospel story and had perhaps heard the gospel story from others, that he wasn't just repeating something he heard, but he investigated it thoroughly. And how he uses that to set up the story of Zacharias in the temple. Notice, first of all, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Luke says, Theophilus, I want you to know there are some stories circulating out there about Jesus. And people have been talking about those things. But Theophilus, I want you to know that these things are true because I went back and I talked to those eyewitnesses. I investigated it thoroughly. And the story begins with this man named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. It says Zacharias was a priest, and his wife, well, she was a daughter of the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron and his sons were the ones who were to be the Jewish priests, and Jewish priests were supposed to marry Levites or other priests' daughters. And so, Zacharias was faithful. And sure to do just that. In fact, as we continue to look at the text, we find out that it is attributed to Zacharias that he is a righteous man. And Elizabeth is a righteous woman. Notice as we continue in verse 6. It says, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. As we look at this beginning of the story, Luke tells us, look, these were people that were righteous. These were people that were blameless. These were people that were careful to follow the ordinances and instructions that God had given. And they were focused on this. righteousness. They were focused on serving God and doing what God wanted. Uh, it, it's not a small detail to say that Zacharias married a son of the daughters of Aaron. Because if you imagine Israel, I mean, that could have been any number of women that he could have fallen in love with. But you see, he took his role as a priest seriously so that he went out and he found a godly woman who met met the requirements that God had for priests and who they were to marry. And both he and his wife were blameless. Both he and his wife were purposeful and diligent in following God. And that's important for us to note as we look at this story. Because these were people that were faithful to God. These were people that were believers in God. Zacharias was a believer, a faithful servant of God. And that's important for us because sometimes as Christians, we see ourselves and we strive to be faithful believers in God. And yet sometimes we can find ourselves in a similar situation that Zacharias is about to find himself in. In the back of our minds, we have a thought, we have a belief in God. And we know God's going to take care of us. And we know God's going to provide for us. And we know that God has given us certain promises. But sometimes those things are distant in our mind as we anticipate those things. And that was the case with Zacharias. Notice how Zacharias was in a unique position, and yet he was in a mundane position, as we continue reading. It says, verse 8, Now it happened that as he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now it's easy for us to get caught up in the mundane. As a priest of God, Zacharias knew that he was a priest. He knew that he was going to function. But what was typical of the day and of that time, because there were so many priests living at the time, that most priests only served two weeks out of the year because they all rotated through this work. And so they spent about two weeks out of the year as a priest serving in the temple. And they served by lot. They chose by lot which group of priests was going to, to do what. And they had 24 divisions. That goes all the way back to the old law, that there were 24 divisions. And so they split up the duties to be done in the temple according to these 24 divisions. And, and Luke tells us, Zacharias belonged to the order of Abijah. And so he's just doing his thing, his mundane thing. Oh, it's my week to serve. Men, have we ever done that? Look at the duties. In the church, it's like, oh, it's my week to serve. Got to get to church early this day, you know, this Sunday, or whatever. You know, better wear my tie this week, you know, or whatever. My best jeans, I don't know, you know. But we're gonna serve, and maybe Zacharias is in that same mindset. The text tells us they were advanced in years. I don't know what that means. Advanced in years. One of my seventh graders told me on Friday. He said, you know what's good about growing up in your day? You still had disco disco, and you didn't have computers yet. And I said, thank you very much. (laughs) What is advanced in years? Luke doesn't tell us what it is that they were advanced in years, but he seems to imply by that that they were beyond the childbearing years. Seems to be the suggestion. He doesn't say they were beyond the childbearing years, but they were advanced in years. And, And so put that back into the story, and think about that. Zacharias has been serving as a priest ever since he was 20 years of age. Uh, twice a year, his group was called up. It's time for you to go serve in the temple. And yet it was a unique service for Zacharias because as they drew lots to randomly determine who would do what in the temple service, once a priest offered incense... Unless he was the high priest, he never did it again. That was something that we uh, uh, honor reserved for once in your lifetime. Now, again, remember there were a bountiful number of priests living at this time, and so it wasn't required that everyone do the same service every time. And so that was considered the high honor to take those that incense. And they they actually divided up. There's so many priests, they divided it up into different stages. You had one guy that would go in and light the fire. Uh, You had one guy that would go in and clean everything up after the incense had been burned. But then you had the main guy or the high honor of actually burning the incense. And on this occasion, it was Zacharias who had that honor. And so in one sense, this is a mundane occasion for Zacharias. And yet it is unique. Commentators, looking at Josephus and some other ancient sources, make the observation that in the Judaism of the day, it was often thought that if you were going to have a vision of God as a priest, it was going to be or likely to happen if you were ever called on to burn the incense. And that's what happens with Zacharias. He goes in to burn the incense, and he has not a vision, but he has an encounter with God. And yet, as he has this encounter of God, we see that he discounts the power of God. Notice what happens as we continue reading. Luke chapter 1, verse 10 says, "...and the whole multitude of the people..." were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you you will give him the name John and you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Notice what the angel tells him. First of all, Zacharias is gripped with fear. He wasn't anticipating this. He's been serving in the temple. He's been doing his priestly service for all these years. Nothing like this has ever happened to him. And all of a sudden, he's behind the curtain, and there is an angel. Would that scare you? Would that get your attention? It got his attention. And the angel says, Zacharias, don't worry about it. Don't don't be afraid. I have a good message for you. And the message is, your prayers have been heard. What's the implication of that? He and Elizabeth have been praying. They've been praying that they might have a child. Remember, they're advanced in years, whatever that means, disco and computers. They're advanced in years and have been able to have a child. And this angel says, You're going to have a baby boy. And he leaves it at that, and disappears. No. He says, You have great joy, and many are going to rejoice at this fact. Why? Why? Go back to the text, and notice what the angel tells Zacharias. He says in verse fifteen four, why is there going to be great joy, great great joy, and rejoicing at the birth of this child? Because verse fifteen four, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel says, Zacharias, not only are you going to have a baby boy, but your child is going to be the Messianic prophet. Your son is going to be the one that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 40. Make way the path of the Lord. Your son is going to be the prophet that Malachi ends his letter with, or his book with, saying a prophet like Elijah is going to come and turn the hearts of the people back to God. The implication is not only are you going to have a son, not only is he going to be a prophet, but the messianic age or the coming of the Messiah is about to happen. Your son is going to be the one to announce it. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's never going to drink. He's never going to have any wine. It means he's not going to go to college in the College Station. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to get that guarantee as a parent? Notice this. It doesn't take a command form here. He's just saying this is what's going to happen. Wouldn't it be great if you have a child, an angel came to you and said, your child is going to be awesome, never going to drink? Wouldn't you just be like, oh, that's awesome, that's great, right? Unfortunately, none of us get that guarantee. So the angel is giving Zacharias all this awesome information, all this good news that ought to make him rejoice, ought to make him be happy. Here's this man who's a priestly man, a godly man, whose wife is a godly woman, and they haven't been anticipating this and anticipating this and anticipating this, and now it's here? What does Zacharias do? Does he run out of the temple and say, Oh, guys, you'll never guess what happened to me while I was in there offering incense? Zacharias does something that I think many of us in a similar circumstance might be tempted to do. Notice what happens, verse 19, verse 18 rather. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice she's not with him in the temple when he says that. But he says, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Again, a suggestion maybe perhaps beyond the the childbearing years. You see, Zacharias acts in disbelief. He acts as he doubts the power of God. Now remember, he believes in God. He's a righteous man. And that's not him saying it. That's the inspired writer making that attribution about Zacharias. And so it's not the fact that he doubts that God exists. It's not that he doubts uh, that God's able to do it, but he's just saying, are you kidding me? Look at me. How can I really know that this is going to happen? So Zacharias begins to experience doubt. He's experienced the power of God as the angel is standing there as he's burning incense. And the angel has told him that the age of the Messiah is about to be upon him. He's experiencing all that awesomeness. And yet in the midst of that awesomeness, he experiences doubt. He displays his doubt with this question, How can I know for certain that this is going to happen? Think about the doubt that Zacharias has. As he does this, he suddenly forgets about Abraham. He suddenly forgets about Job. He suddenly forgets about Jacob. What do those men have in common? God tells Abraham when he's 75 years of age. Is that advanced in years? Back then? God tells Abraham when he's 75... Why don't you go to a land that you've never been to before? And I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to give you some kids. So Abraham goes, and he waits. He waits for 25 years. For 25 years, he waits. And then he has Isaac. Then when Isaac's old enough to be able to know, hey, I've got the wood on my back, and I know we're going up to make a sacrifice, but I don't, I don't see a sacrifice. So he's old enough to carry a pack of wood big enough to burn a living body on, or to burn a body on. I don't know how, don't know how much wood that is. but I, That's more than one or two pieces of wood, right? And he's old enough to reason. So maybe he's, a teen, you know, 10 years old or so. The point is, Abraham's waited 30 years for this child. And God says, I want you to go sacrifice him. And God provided his promise to Abraham. Job, don't know how old Job was. He was an old guy. We know because Elihu is a younger guy, and he talks about how old Job and his friends are. Job's family is completely destroyed by the power of Satan. And by the end of the book, God gives him more children. What about Jacob? Jacob was 40 years old when he got married. Let me repeat that for those of you that are young in, the fam- in, the, in this room. 40 years old when he got married. And he worked seven years for Rachel. And then he worked another seven years for Rachel. Rachel although he had a week, I think it was a week, before he was able to actually marry Seven years. God kept his promise. Zacharias, who believes in God, knows God, is, is called a righteous man, a faithful man, blameless and following the law. Has these stories in the back of his mind. And he suddenly has forgotten those when God sends an angel to him. An angel who at this point in the story we are told his name is Gabriel, which means the power of God. And he's forgotten the power of God. And he says, how will I know for certain that this will be? So the angel says, I'll tell you. Let me tell you, first of all, who I am. Verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, the power of God, who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So Gabriel says, you're asking how you can believe me? Have you ever had one of those conversations with someone? They tell you something, you say, I don't believe that. And they they look at you and they say, you want to know how you can believe me? Ever had one of those conversations? Zacharias is having that conversation with this angel who has appeared to him as he's in the temple. And the angel says, I'm not just any ordinary angel. My name is the power of God. And I serve in the presence of God. Think about the imagery of angels serving before God that we see throughout Scripture. Not every angel is right before the presence of God. Gabriel says, I came from the very presence of God. He sent me with this message. That's how you can know this is going to happen. And I'm going to give you another sign. You want to know what your sign is, Zacharias? Look at the next verse. Verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You're not going to be able to talk until all this is fulfilled. Verse 21, The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out and was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. So Zacharias is not able to speak. That's the authentic-, authentic authentication for him. I can't speak right now either. That's the authentication for him that these things were going to take place, because the angel mutes him. He can't talk. I wonder if Elizabeth was happy about that. But he can't talk until all these things take place. When John is born, all of a sudden he's able to talk again. He had an experience with the power of God. He had an experience with doubt. And the question for you and I this morning is, what is our experience with the power of God? And our experience with doubt? I want you to think about some things with me this morning as we think about our experience with doubt, our anticipation and our encounter with God. Sometimes there are little things in our lives, our desires in which we anticipate things, and we tell ourselves, is God ever going to take care of me? Is God going to take care of this for me? When am I going to get this? When am I going to get that? How is this going to play out? And in the back of our minds as Christians, we tell ourselves, yeah, I know God's out there, I know God's coming back someday. I know God has given me forgiveness of sins. What about this? Is God able to take care of it? Is God able to provide for us? Flip over to Matthew chapter 7. And notice what Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. In verse 7. Matthew chapter 7. In verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when a son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Interesting passage. What's Jesus saying here? One interpretation that you sometimes hear, and I, 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 I tend to like this interpretation, is that Jesus says sometimes as kids we think, oh, can I have this fish? Can I have this bread? And as parents we look at it we think, that's not a fish. That's a snake. That's not a loaf of bread. That's a stone. As kids we ask for things thinking how great it is, how wonderful it would be, how much we need it. And as adults we look at those things we think, that's not what you need. And Jesus says, sometimes that's how we act with God. And He knows what we need, and He's able to give it to us. And He's going to give us what we need. He's going to give us good things. He's able to give us good gifts. And so as we anticipate and anticipate, we... We have in the back of our minds, yeah, I know God's going to do all those things later on. No. God's going to do things for you now. It may not necessarily always be in the way that you would think or in the timing that you would think, but God's going to take care of you, even with the little things that we ask for, even with the little things that we want but sometimes there are a little bit bigger things in our lives. Sometimes we face health problems. Sometimes we have trials of various kinds. Sometimes we face crises. And we think, does God know? Does God care? Still in the Sermon on, on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, notice what Jesus says. He says, and who... Of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not spin, and yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so closes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles all eagerly seek all of these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus isn't saying, don't plan, don't work. He's not saying just go be someone that just kind of wanders around looking for things to be given to you. But what he's saying is is you don't have to worry. God knows what you need, and he's going to provide those things for you. And yet sometimes we're kind of like Zacharias, and we don't think about the power of God, the power to provide the things that we need. But God sees it. He knows it. And He's able to provide it. So we have the little things, the wants that we have in life, the needs that we have in life. Those are the bigger things in our lives. But then there is the bigger thing, and that is anticipating the power. Power of God to save our souls. And sometimes as we anticipate that power, it's easy for us to put it off so far down the road, so far in our minds that we forget that it's coming. And maybe we are even embarrassed by what some might say about it. Notice what the people were saying in Peter's day. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says in verse 2, 2 Peter chapter 3. He said that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says there's going to be people in the last days saying, where's his coming? Where is Jesus at? Why hasn't he come back yet? Why do you believe in all that junk? Verse 5, Peter says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens uh, existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years." and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's easy in our minds in 2017, having lived a number of years, some advanced and some not, I suppose, but as the days keep going by, we anticipate and we anticipate and we anticipate until that anticipation is so far removed that it's just kind of out there. But we don't really think about it. But there's a day coming when we're going to experience the power of God in all its awesomeness. And we can know that that day is real. We can experience the power of God and we sometimes forget about the power of God. Sometimes we doubt the power of God because as we anticipate and anticipate, we want things in our time. And when it doesn't happen in our time or in the way that we want, we, we, we forget about the power of God. But the power of God is always there to change our lives and to provide for. Us.